From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Eric Williams, Vice Chair of the OPPD Board of Directors. Uh, There's a funny um, article that The Onion put out, and it's a joke that scientists casually remind everyone that clean energy is ready to go just, you know, whenever. So let us know. And that was almost a decade ago, and, and it's only gotten more true every day since then. This is primarily not still a technical question, or at least it's not for the next few years or maybe even 10 or 20 years. We have technologies we need. It will continue to get a little bit better. Um, but what we need now is policy and leadership and planning and guidance to work on rapid deployment to get the clean energy transition accelerating and moving toward the future. Williams talks about the plan to get Nebraska carbon neutral by 2050, what changes need to happen now, and what the future may look like. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Eric Williams, Vice Chair of the OPPD Board of Directors. Williams has served as the president of the Engineers Club of Omaha, helped found the Dundee Community Garden, and is the natural resources planner at the Papio, Missouri River Natural Resources District. Williams was elected to the OPPD Board of Directors to represent Subdistrict 6 in 2018. The Board of Directors at OPPD adopted a goal of net zero carbon emissions for Nebraska by 2050, and Williams has a vision for how to get there. Here's our conversation. All right. Well, so Eric, I know you have a disclosure you want to start with, which is good because sometimes I ask about opinions and things and uh, I don't want to get anybody into any kind of trouble. So if you want to start with that. Sure. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I'm the elected director representing subdivision six on the OPPD board of directors. And so any views or opinions are my own and don't officially represent anyone else or, or the organization. And and I think that's really important. I think that gets at the essence of public power, that everyone uh, in our community has an elected representative who is responsible to represent their views on the board of directors and provide that public accountability. Um, and so I'm really proud of the public power system, and I'm glad to be representing people uh, in my district, uh, and I'm uh, glad to be here to, with, uh, with you talking today. Well, so I'm, I'm glad we got that out of the way because I do want to start with an opinion question. Um, All right. It's a broad one. Uh, how, how terrified are you about the future of the planet in the face of humans, you know, humanity's seeming inaction on a lot of big existential risks like climate, climate change, carbon emissions? Yeah, uh, I do think that we have some significant challenges in front of us, and um, I think that we have overcome significant challenges in the past. Um, And so I do have uh, hope that we can um, look forward and work together to find solutions. Uh, But very near the top of that list for me is climate change. I've been involved in clean energy and energy efficiency and um, climate action for about 15 years now. Um, And I have progressively um, gotten more and more involved, uh, leading to the decision to campaign for the board of directors at OPPD. Uh, And I've been there for about three years. And so, um, yeah, I I do feel that we need to take um, significant action to reduce carbon emissions and to help um, preserve and protect uh, the natural resources, um, our air, water, soil, and specifically climate. Um, We've been dumping lots of carbon pollution into the air for 150 years or so now. Um, and, uh, and, and we need to recognize that we have better options available and to take action to improve the lives of people into the future. And so while some people see it as a challenge and a cost that we have to pay um, in order to, uh, to overcome the, uh, the, the challenges of climate change, I see it primarily as an opportunity. And uh, what we really need to be doing is deciding how are we going to distribute the benefits, uh, the numerous benefits of the clean energy economy that we're currently working on building. And so uh, I am hopeful looking forward. Um, We have a lot of great technologies. We have a lot of dedicated people working in lots of areas. And so uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to be involved for years and, and hopefully decades into the future. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing about it, which is this seems solvable. And it seems like there is generally the tech you need to get there. It's a question of will people choose to support that? And it gets politicized from there and it gets messier, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I do think that um, the technology, uh, there's a funny um, article that The Onion put out. And at the time, I thought, oh, this is kind of cute. But that was nine years ago, I think. And it's a joke that scientists casually remind everyone that clean energy is ready to go just, you know, whenever. So let us know. 
And that was almost a decade ago. And, and it's only gotten more true every day since then. And so the technology that we have to address our energy needs for the future, while also um, you know, maintaining the reliability that public power has provided to Nebraskans for the last hundred years, um, and the affordability, we can do both of those two core parts of our mission, provide reliable and affordable power, while also reducing carbon emissions as we look to the future. And so you're right. This is primarily not still a technical question, or at least it's not for the next few years or maybe even 10 or 20 years. We have technologies we need. It will continue to get a little bit better. Um, but what we need now is policy and leadership and planning and guidance to work on rapid deployment to get the clean energy transition accelerating and moving toward the future. So, I mean, it's a question. Messaging seems to be the hardest thing about this at this point, right? So uh, I, I want to take a quick detour here. I know everybody's got strong opinions on everything. Did you see the new movie, Don't Look Up? Uh, I did. I, uh, yeah, I saw some previews for it. I wasn't totally clear what it was about. And then I kind of went out of my way to not find out too much so that there would be some surprise. But um, again, as someone who's been involved in uh, climate action um, over the last 15 years, um, it really hit home for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that your interest and your familiarity with the content of Don't Look Up is very proportional to how much you've been involved in climate action for, for recent decades. Well, the, I, I was particularly struck by uh, the speech that Leonardo DiCaprio's character gives about halfway through, which I, I wrote down minus some of the F words uh, so I can say it on the radio. But there's a problem that I think he distills in there, which is really interesting to me and kind of haunting as well. But he says, if we can't all agree at a bare minimum that a giant comet the size of Mount Everest hurtling its way toward planet Earth is not a good thing, then what happened to us? How do we even talk to each other? What have we done to ourselves? And, I, you know, I, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head, regardless of, you know, even the allegory itself, that can be applied to so many different issues. And so, I mean, how, how do you navigate that question of just how do you talk to people who can live in sort of their own echo chambers, who have so many strong opinions on things just because they hear the opinions from whatever, you know, wherever they choose to get their media from? You know, how, like, how, do, you, how do you navigate that as someone who has to message about really important things? Yeah, um, I do think that we have uh, kind of a cultural problem. Um, maybe it's most prominent in the United States, but uh, but more broadly, um, that there there are culture wars that are going on, and we allow our our self identification of which side or team we're on to dictate how we feel about an issue, rather than evaluating the information and then using that to inform our position. And I think that 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 has become more prominent over recent years, and that is really challenging. Where um, you know, unfortunately, you highlighted that for some reason, action on climate and clean energy is political, but that doesn't make any sense. Fundamentally, the conservative party should be in support of conserving and protecting natural resources. And there are lots of groups who are self-identified Republicans and conservatives who want to see us protect uh, habitat for, um, for wildlife so that they can participate in some of those outdoor sports or um, know that the changing uh, climate and weather patterns are negatively impacting our ability to project future agricultural production. And so it isn't inherently an, you know, a, a two-sided issue, but I do think there is something about the structure of our social media and our media more broadly that wants to push us apart. And I think we really have got to find some ways to, to work through that and recognize that there is vastly more that binds us together than separates us. And, and the more often I talk with people directly, the more often I end up finding strong agreement on the ideas that, yes, if people would like to put solar panels on their home and generate some of their own energy, that's a good idea. We should support that. Or uh, if we have um, affordable new renewable energy technology with an energy source right here in Nebraska that can create um, local jobs and, uh, and develop our local economies, that we should move forward with that. But when you step back and when you ask the broad question and it becomes depersonalized, I think people are more prone to say, uh, that's not something that I fundamentally agree with. That's someone else's opinion. And so I do think that Again, this is not mostly a technological problem. This is mostly an interpersonal problem. And so when we look to the future, who are the people who are needed now to be involved in climate action and helping us with the clean energy transition? I would say it's mostly people with um, sociology backgrounds or people who can help with messaging to convey accurate ideas about what's happening and what will happen in the future. And so, you know, we still do need people in STEM to help improve batteries and get more efficient solar panels. But 
That work has been very effectively completed over the last couple of decades. Now what we need is to carry the message forward to people to say that it's not scary, it might be a little bit different, but it can still provide the same types of end services that people want while we improve some of the things that for too long have gone overlooked. Well, and so Nebraska itself, because it is generally a red state, uh, it doesn't seem like an obvious fit for, honestly, a lot of people who are passionate about the kinds of uh, plans that you are proposing, right? Our elected officials, like Governor Ricketts, often deride concepts like the Green New Deal, the 30 by 30 Clean Energy Act, uh, sometimes calls them, you know, radical, et cetera, without really kind of explaining what it is that's radical other than just it's easy to sort of engage in the culture war that way. So, I mean, why, why did you center yourself in Nebraska to start to make some of these changes, even though you'll have to engage in sort of other levels of the fight beyond just the practical? Yeah, well, um, I'm from Nebraska originally, um, grew up here, uh, studied engineering, and came back after I graduated and been working here for about 20 years now since. Um, and, and I see a huge amount of potential in our state and in our communities to take advantage of the resources that we have. Um, I just saw a new poll or a new ranking yesterday of the which states produce the most clean energy right now. Um, and we are like 20th overall. Um, which is quite a ways down from we are generally ranked third in wind energy potential and something like eighth or tenth uh, in solar energy potential. And so we are dramatically underperforming. And and I think that this is something that is starting to catch on more in Nebraska. And it is very well understood in Iowa and in Kansas and even in Texas that those resources can provide a lot of value to people and um, and an economic opportunity. And so, you know, I, I hope that Nebraska, even though we have... Um, as you said, it's a more conservative state. Uh, I think that there are still um, enough benefits from clean energy and climate action and that, that we can find policies that will meet the needs of people from all kinds of political backgrounds, from urban and rural locations, um, you know, from, from every walk of life. Everybody can be involved in the types of vision that is outlined for the future, and, and we really need everybody involved. And so we can't really afford to say that because Nebraska is a red state, um, it's not an important place to take uh, strong action on developing clean energy resources and revitalizing rural economies. That's just not a that's just not an acceptable position. We can't we can't write places off. Um, so I'm glad to be here and um, you know doing part of that work, working alongside so many others. And you know, I, I, again, I think it is primarily about the opportunity recognizing the opportunity and choosing to make that part of our future. Why do we have such good potential for it? Is it because we don't have trees? Um, that's part of it. Um, geography plays a, a big part of the, um, of the wind energy potential. Um, you know, the um, larger weather systems across the United States, uh, wind generally comes over the mountains and down across the plains. And so when you look at maps showing the wind energy potential from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, um, that is the wind belt. It's a vertical line of states from Canada all the way down to Mexico. And the potential renewable energy opportunity in those states is tremendous, vastly more than we need for all of our energy consumption in those states and roughly than all of our energy consumption in the entire country. Uh, it would be challenging to develop only in those states and send all the energy to other parts of the country. Um, but we do have just an incredible resource. Um, as you said, uh, trees are one part of it. Um, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, I, I uh, would guess. But um, yeah, the, uh, the flat geography of the state does help to uh, provide a, a strong and reliable wind energy resource in Nebraska. Um, and we have a lot of sunny days, um, even though it might be a little cold, colder in the winter and a little cloudy. Um, we have a, a significant amount of solar energy potential. Uh, we also have uh, biomass um, as another form of potential renewable energy. And we even have a little bit of uh, geothermal energy that's available in, in specific locations. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can participate in, in clean energy here in Nebraska. And um, as you said, you know, the, the geography that um, has defined the history of our state and so many people whose families grew up here and have lived here for generations, um, it is providing us with the things that we need to improve lives in the future. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Eric Williams, vice chair of the OPPD Board of Directors, about the goal of net zero carbon emissions for Nebraska by 2050. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. It actually surprised me when you first reached out to the show that there even is a plan to go carbon, to have a net zero carbon uh, in Omaha by 2050. And, you know, I, I guess that's something where uh, I, I really just didn't think maybe, uh, 
maybe because I talk to so many Omaha people, but it just, I don't know, sometimes I, I have these like stereotypes about the city that there's going to be this pushback on things. And I guess because I didn't hear it from a point of controversy and it just is a plan that's happening and it's something definitely I support, it almost surprised me, you know, that, that it's something that I don't know if it's as publicized as it maybe should be or if it's on the way or whatever, but the fact that there is a plan to get there by 2050, you know, that, that's obviously something that's a big step for a place like Omaha. I mean, how, how did that come about? Well, um, you say a plan, but it's not really just one. It's several. Uh, in November of 2019, the board of directors at OPPD approved a long-term goal of reaching net zero carbon by 2050. Um, about a year later, uh, the board at Lincoln Electric System uh, also approved a goal to be net zero carbon by 2040. Uh, and then just in December, the board of directors at NPPD, Nebraska Public Power District, who covers basically the rest of the state that's not Omaha and Lincoln, uh, their board of directors approved a plan to work toward zero carbon by 2050 as well. Um, on top of that, the city of Lincoln has a climate action plan that will expand beyond just the electric energy to other areas of sustainability to help reduce emissions um, and, uh, and to better manage resources. And the city of Omaha is currently in the process of developing uh, a climate action plan. And so... At many levels, in many places, the recognition that these are opportunities that we should prepare for is being incorporated into long-range documents by um, account, uh, elected officials, um, by um, employees at uh, public agencies, and increasingly by private businesses who know that the opportunity from recognizing clean energy and sustainability into your business model not only is that an opportunity, but if you aren't incorporating those things into the way you do business in the future, if you aren't managing your waste streams and repurposing them to some kind of another beneficial use, if you are inefficient in your energy use, that you are just hurting yourself economically. And so I think that that recognition wasn't the main story originally. Um, recycling in the 70s was pitched as, you know, save the planet, help recycle plastic. But at this point, there is also an extremely strong argument that you should help to recycle resources and conserve resources and generate local clean um, energy and other resources because it is just more economically beneficial to you and your community and if you're a business, to your bottom line. And so it's not just a few people. It is across the state. It is at all levels of government. It is in private businesses. And we are part of the national and international movement that is recognizing this is where we need to be in the future. This will definitely provide the best quality of life for people everywhere by incorporating these practices into what we're doing. So what, what is it that makes it economically uh, advantageous to switch? Like what, what is it that's different? What is it that's costing more to not switch? Um, the short version is that uh, wind and solar, renewable energy sources in Nebraska, are the lowest cost energy from new resources of, of any type of energy. Uh, and that's measured by megawatt hour or the energy that's consumed. But it is the lowest cost new form of energy that we can construct. And now there are some caveats there. Um, sun doesn't shine at night. Wind doesn't always blow. Um, and that's true. And we need to come up with ways to continue to provide that high reliability to our customers for electricity um, while remaining affordable and reducing our carbon emissions. But the underlying uh, main argument here is that it is just cheaper. And so it is challenging to look at this is the cheapest form of new energy resource that we can bring online. Um, it's difficult to look at that and say, yeah, we think we're going to actually do something different. And there are legacy um, installations that are continuing to provide value to people in our communities, uh, both generation sites at OPPD and across the state of Nebraska. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we bring on that inexpensive uh, new renewable energy and mix it with the existing resources that we have. And so that's a huge part of what uh, utilities are working toward now and what climate actions plans um, are, are focusing on uh, identifying is what are the steps to get from where we are to where we want to be while um, avoiding significant disruptions and working to equitably distribute the benefits of that transition. That sounds like there's a lot that you have to figure out. I mean, so like, what, what would it look like then? So if we, if we think to 2050, what does Omaha look like? How is it different from what it looks like now? Or Nebraska, I guess, in general. I mean, I think it, I think it won't look dramatically different. Um, but I think some of the underlying systems that provide the things that we expect and appreciate in our lives will be operating in a slightly different way. And so at the end, um, you know, at the outlet, when you plug in an appliance, in theory, it shouldn't be any different than what you experience now. It has high reliability. It has relatively low cost. But it can also be moving toward lower carbon emissions. 
Uh, and, and this is all part of um, a, a future plan that OPPD has been working on for um, quite a while now, um, the uh, vision for 2050, um, powering the future to 2050. And, uh, and that plan is in process and is, um, well, is, is being finalized and will be um, publicly presented to outline what is the vision at OPPD of what our, our role will look like in our community uh, in 2050. And that's kind of one long-term um, strategic visioning document but it's just a part of all of the planning work that is continually ongoing within the organization and with stakeholders in the community. So um, I, I, would, I would slightly defer to when the uh, Power in the Future to 2050 vision document is released. That will have by far um, the best um, set of information for people to see what do we expect the future at OPPD and in our community to look like. And it, it does have quite a bit of uh, description and detail and how things will uh, improve, what things will be the same as what we're familiar with, what things might be slightly different, and, and how is OPPD preparing to provide those uh, types of products and services in the future. So, I mean, part of the idea of the mixture is, like you said before, sometimes, it's, I mean, like at night, for example, it's probably difficult to get a lot of solar energy, right, or to harness some of that power. So the idea would be at certain times you have maybe wind is picking up the slack for where you know the sun is not, and then uh, I don't know, whatever else there is, but so that you don't have, I mean, like one of the stereotypes you hear people like I think Governor Ricketts has talked about, like we can't have, you know, the unreliability of solar panels or something like that. But the idea would be that you've got multiple different uh, strands, multiple different uh, ways of harnessing energy all around. So it's just as consistent as what you're used to now. Yeah. And I think um, the first point there would be that um, wind and solar are what's called intermittent, meaning they don't always produce. But that is not the same as unreliable. And it's an important distinction, and I think not everybody uh, is familiar with the, those kind of fine, uh, fine words in describing that, that just because the sun doesn't shine at night doesn't mean that solar panels are unreliable. In fact, the day ahead and five-day and next-month forecast for solar energy production is very good. And so that's what's important to the way that our electric uh, utilities work, both individual utilities and then at the broader scale across the grid, that as long as you can understand and expect ahead of time what's going to happen, you can plan for intermittent resources to be deployed, to be producing clean electricity, and to help bring down the cost of electricity overall. Um, and that is slightly different than the idea of we hit a switch and the plant comes on and it runs all the time and it produces all the energy we need. It is a slightly different uh, model of energy production, but I think it is really important to understand that intermittent does not mean unreliable. In fact, uh, it is when you look at um, some of what happened last year during some national uh, weather events, um, the renewable resources did provide energy basically exactly as was expected. And some of the other types of resources were less, um, performed less well than they might have been expected to. And so reliable is, is a tricky word, and it, we are currently working on an updated definition of the policy at OPPD for reliability and resilience because this shift from um, what's called base load or firm generation, usually fossil fuel generation resources, that shift to intermittent uh, renewable resources does mean we need new policy, uh, and, and that will help us prepare for the future. Um, but you're right that uh, different resources produce at different times, um, you know, and, and quite conveniently, uh, the sun is during the day and wind actually generally produces a little more at night in our area. So that's very helpful. Um, that's a time shift, day, night, um, week to week, month to month, throughout the seasons. There's an additional way to shift energy, and that's geographically through the grid. And so a huge portion of preparing for the future is knowing that in different places, different resources will be producing different amounts of energy, and we can share those resources across a large area through the transmission lines. And so um, if it is windy in Kansas and we need energy in Nebraska, some of that can come over the transmission lines to us. That helps uh, us have access to their low-cost wind energy. And a lot of times when we have extra wind energy, um, it can go over the lines to other states, and then we are selling that energy to um, you know, another state, and, and they are um, benefiting from that clean and affordable electricity. So both um, a time shift in energy production and a location or geography shift in energy production, uh, both of those are really important to how we will have the right mix of resources to continue to meet uh, the demand at, at all hours. So with the amount of energy that's produced in a day or a night, how long does it last? Do you have to start over again the next day, or can you harness it for a long amount of time? Or is, or is that just a, an ongoing tech question? Yeah, that's, that's a somewhat a question about storage. 
Um, can you use batteries to store um, renewable electricity, for example? And the answer is, to some extent, yes. Current battery technology generally will store energy for about four hours. There are some um, long-duration storage technologies that are being um, kind of pilot implemented right now. There's a pretty um, well-known one up in Minnesota uh, that's moving forward with that kind of new battery technology that's supposed to do, I think, 150 hours of storage. Um, and so that, I think it is, there, there are new technologies coming online. And um, no, batteries cannot meet all of our needs today, right now. That is, that is correct. But the other side of that is no one is suggesting that we instantly switch from the resources we currently have to only solar and wind and batteries. That is no one's proposal. The proposal is to responsibly plan for new resources to come online and transition to renewables and storage and demand-side resources as that becomes uh, viable with those two underlying assumptions of reliability and affordability still in mind. And so, you know, I, I think people ask about the storage question. Um, can you store energy indefinitely? Um, probably not right now, but do we see technologies, chemical batteries, uh, other forms of potential or kinetic or chemical energy storage? Um, yeah, those are all being developed and they will be better in the future. And I think they will be adopted when they are ready and they have been tested and, and are ready for deployment. Um, so, yeah, I think that there are good ways to distribute that energy, again, as we said, over time. Solar produces during the day, puts them in a battery, use it later in the day or use it at night. I think the other really important part of this question is that um, you don't start over every day. It's not a bucket that drains down and you need to refill. The grid must always be providing exactly the same amount of energy as is being consumed. It must always exactly equal. That's how the system works. And so um, there are two sides to that. One of them is, as we just talked about, generation resources or supply side resources. You can bring more supply online. The other side would be demand side resources. And if you can adjust when energy is consumed, then you can match that consumption to when renewable energy or inexpensive energy is available. And I think that's a big part of the equation that hasn't really been fully understood in the past. And even as I say that, I know that's a pretty technical thing, and I'd be glad to talk about that if you want to go into a lot of detail. But um, demand-side energy resources uh, are going to be a bigger part of our future. And electric appliances, electric vehicles, um, flexibility in the way that people's uh, offices or industrial facilities operate will allow us to be more able to adjust demand to meet when inexpensive renewable energy is available. And that is a very challenging planning and policy question. And again, something that we're looking at now at OPPD. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's probably the lesser known side of the equation. Um, it, industry, uh, energy, energy industry people would say that in the past, we have predicted the demand and then deployed the supply. But in the future, it will be the reverse, meaning that you will predict the supply. When do we know that wind and solar will be available? and then deploy demand to match those renewable and inexpensive resources. Electric vehicles are a really good example. Uh, they can generally charge uh, at lots of different times, day or night, at home or at work. They're pretty flexible. And so if you know that wind energy at night is going to be abundant and inexpensive, you can plug in your car and charge it when the wind energy is available. And that's an example of a demand side resource um, that hasn't generally been understood or incorporated to great lengths in the past, but, uh, but it will be in the future. And, and that's a huge part of the planning that's, uh, that's going on now. I'm talking with Eric Williams, vice chair of the OPPD board of directors about the goal of net zero carbon emissions in Nebraska by 2050. What do you think? Can we get there? Are you willing to make changes for a cooler, stabler future? Let us know. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Strange planets. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Mystifying starships. Looking up. I mean, whoa. Had to be rich to take that ride. Bigger than any ship I'd ever seen before. Curious technology. Set it to, oh, uh, 21st century Earth, West Indian accent. I love that one. Are you out of your skull? 
and a fantastic vision of the distant future featuring Martin Starr. That's the Sunday shuttle landing. Our last visitors before they shut the topiary down tomorrow. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. Yeah, you don't need to fill anything out or sign me up for anything. I'm staying. Brent Weinbach. Residents may accuse you of lying. This is common. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? I'm sure we can. It's for my daughter. Of course, sir. And many more. It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Every episode of this science fiction anthology is now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is, and please leave us a review. I'm talking with Eric Williams, vice chair of the OPPD board of directors, about the goal of net zero carbon emissions in Nebraska by 2050. Here's the rest of our conversation. So in the plan to get net zero uh, for 2050, there, what are all the different types of renewables we're looking at here? Is it just solar, wind, or are there other types as well? There are other types, uh, but the, the headline portion of the story will be solar and wind in Nebraska. Um, there will be some other things. Um, uh, people talk about what's called clean, firm energy. That means some, might mean something like um, biomass, which is um, burned or creates... Um, creates a renewable um, renewable fuel to be to be burned. Um, there are discussions about how hydrogen might be a play uh, might be a part of our future energy system, um, but a huge bulk of the energy production will come from those very well understood, very well tested, very abundant renewable and inexpensive resources here in Nebraska. So solar and wind is going to be a huge portion of the story for us. And so we used to use nuclear, right? And that's off the table now. Uh, OPPD had a nuclear facility, which is currently in the process of being decommissioned in Fort Calhoun. Um, And NPPD does still have a currently operating nuclear facility, the Cooper Nuclear Station. Uh, And so um, there is one nuclear facility in Nebraska, and it does provide extremely reliable, um, no-carbon energy. And so that is uh, an important part of the planning that NPPD is doing for the future, is how to uh, mix that resource with other resources as they look toward their decarbonization pathway. There is a lot of discussion about advances in nuclear energy, and uh, there are several different types of technologies that are being investigated now and might become really um, economically competitive in the future, but none of them have really been tested and proven yet. And so for nuclear energy, that is probably going to be a part of the story, maybe in the middle 2030s or in the 2040s. Um, But from now until then, Rapid deployment of solar and wind is going to be the cheapest answer. It matches well with the existing resources we have. It's well tested and well understood. And so I think that's probably going to be a majority of what we're going to see in the in the near to mid-range future. So I get that 2050 is picked in part because people like, you know, tens as numbers. And the other part is that it's just going to take a while to make big changes. But as far as some of the pressure of the changing climate and the raising temperatures, rising temperatures, why 2050 as opposed to like an urgent number like 2030, 2035? When you look in different places, uh, there are different types of goals. Uh, President Biden has said several times that he would like to see a zero carbon electric sector by 2035. Um, that was covered in an executive order um, early on in his presidency. Um, an executive order does not translate directly into policy and action immediately, but it sets uh, that one in particular set more of a kind of a goal and an expectation of where we should be trying to work. Um, it isn't again enforceable um, uh, regulation now through um, some of the you know the uh, federal uh, energy regulatory commission or anything like that. Um, but there are other places that have different goals. I think that most of the big tech companies have been at the forefront of renewable energy use. So as far as I understand, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, they all have 100% renewable energy now, and that's measured on an annual basis. So all of the energy that they use over the course of a year is generated from renewable energy resources in some over the year. It doesn't mean that every second of every day they are getting only renewable energy. But they are updating their goals to be 24-7 renewable energy all day, every day, by 2030. 
And that is a very aggressive goal. And so there will be places who have more aggressive goals. There will be places who are um, working more slowly because of the type of resources they currently have or other constraints on their energy transition. Um, OPPD, uh, when we established the net zero carbon goal by 2050, we talked about the need for interim metrics so that between, again, November of 2019 and 2050, we would, uh, we would know how we're doing along the way. And that is something that we will look at um, later this year to use some of the energy modeling that we've done over the last several months to help us inform what interim metrics by, say, 2030 or 2035 or 2040 will help us to remain sharply focused on how we're doing as we go toward that long-term goal. And so, okay, 2050 then, assuming everything goes according to plan, I mean, is part of the conversation then what, what if, like, if major cities do switch to renewables, if they do switch to net zero by 2050, I mean, is there some metric of how big of an impact that will have uh, on, you know, like, say, the, the U.S. carbon, uh, you know, overall emissions? Like, is there is there actually, like, a real chance that the country gets to uh, net zero at some point? Um, I would say better than a chance. Um, I think mostly what will be discussed is the timeline. And so, um, again, because renewable energy is just flat out cheaper these days, um, it's going to be hard for new carbon-emitting resources to compete in the future. And, uh, and, and that will be a more challenging case to make when faced with, this is the lowest cost resource. What do we need to do to incorporate more of these renewable resources? Um, so, I, so I do think that it is something like inevitable that we will get to a mostly renewable energy and net zero carbon, um, not only electric sector, but more broadly our entire society. Um, and I think that there are Again, there are more difficult questions than the electric utility industry, um, decarbonizing, um, challenging things like cement and steel and agriculture are probably going to be more difficult than electricity because we know what we need to do in electricity, but there's not a firm answer for what specifically should we do to decarbonize those other sectors. Uh, will we get there? I do think that we will get there. Um, I think that there is a growing concern by citizens in Nebraska and across the country, and basically all of the polling, um, the Yale Center for Climate Communications is probably the most well-known polling organization. Their polls routinely show a significant increase in the concern people have over energy and climate policy. And, uh, and that trends most strongly, even more strongly than by party affiliation, most strongly with age. That young people are more concerned about climate action than older people are because younger people will be here to experience the consequences of the choices made today. And so I do think that um, we will see significant changes into the future. Um, how and when will we uh, achieve various milestones along the way? I think that's what we're working to figure out now. Um, what will be the outcomes of the, uh, of the decisions that we do or do not make? Um, a lot of the international climate modeling is centered around trying to stay below 1.5 um, degrees Celsius of global temperature increase. In general, if we got to global zero carbon by 2050, people think that we should be able to stay at about 1.5 or maybe 2 degrees Celsius increase. Uh, that is a dramatic shift from the global average surface temperature from all of human history. And so that's why it's so important to try and keep that number down. Um, but what will be the outcomes? Uh, I mean, you know, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So um, I guess we'll see how do, when we get to 2050, how will the path of decarbonization for utilities and other sectors, how will it have looked? Uh, I guess uh, call me back in 30 years and we'll talk about it. <laughs> well, I think it's, people do, even if they are concerned, it can seem abstract to say two degrees, you know, uh, a two degree increase. And we're not even saying in Fahrenheit, so I'm sure other people are, you know, that, that can get confusing and murky, right, as far as the messaging goes. So, like, how, how do you make that feel more concrete as what exactly that threat means as opposed to just like, you know, the sea's a little higher? Yeah, um, there was a really good report from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2015 uh, about the implications of climate change in Nebraska and talks specifically about what that will mean for agriculture, for um, forests, for people in cities, for people in rural areas, for the um, increasing potential for drought, but simultaneously an increasing potential for very large storms, so flooding. Um, and so that report highlighted what the changes would likely be uh, but it didn't prescribe what should be done in any particular area to either mitigate or adapt to those changes. And so we've understood this pretty well for quite a while. 
And I think policy is just lagging behind some of the scientific understanding. And, and as you said, scientific understanding is different than public understanding. So what can help people to understand what it means to have a two degrees Celsius global average surface temperature increase? Um, again, that's why we need more people with um, you know, sociological backgrounds to help convey what that means. Because two degrees doesn't sound too bad. You know, even two degrees warmer in the winter might sound like a good thing. But two degrees on the surface of the Earth over the course of a year and continuing to trend up has very serious consequences. Um, I, I think one that was in some of those early reports, um, for every additional degree Fahrenheit of global average temperature increase, there's like a 10 or a 20% reduction in corn uh, predict, predicted yield. And so, you know, we're already at about... Uh, that's how you speak Nebraskan right there. That's, that's why I remember yep. it. <laughs> I think we're already um, approximately at two degrees Fahrenheit increase. And so that projects, you know, some tens of percentages of reduction in uh, annual corn yield because the hot temperatures in the middle of the summer just really negatively impact the crop. And so, you know, what things will connect with people in different places? Um, I'm guessing that that's one that people will connect with in Nebraska. Um, you know, what other ways should we convey this information? Uh, I, I think that that's a, a big part of the challenge is how do we help people to understand this moving forward? Well, it seems like you, you've sort of set the stage for uh, the situation where at least young people and larger and larger portions of voters maybe care about this issue. But then the way that we have money in politics and oil money in politics specifically, then makes it difficult for public will to translate to political will. Do you see a solution there other than just public will gets overwhelming at some point? Uh, yeah, there are incumbents who have investments in things that um, probably will need to not be fully economically realized in order for us to get to these uh, energy and climate goals. And so, you know, are there enough fossil fuel resources um, accessible uh, to us on the earth to, to fuel our society for, you know, 100 or 200 years? I think the answer is probably yes. But should we do that? I think the answer is probably no. Um, sorry, I think the answer is definitely no. Um, but uh, and helping to get policy that says you could, as an oil company, you could extract oil from the ground and sell it for profit, um, but we need you not to do that. And so policy needs to help economics send a signal to the market that we need you to move into clean energy and not choose to extract those fossil resources that will have some of those negative consequences. And, and that's, a, that's a, difficult thing to, uh, a difficult thing to convey. I mean, that is several levers operating simultaneously. But I think there are lots of indicators in lots of places that even places, big international oil corporations, um, see the writing on the wall that you can't continue to project uh, unlimited development of those uh, of those fossil resources that you might have explored in the past. That's not going to be politically or, um, you know, societally accepted. And so I think that they are starting to recognize we need to become, and most of them have said, we are an energy company, not an oil company. We want to provide the energy for our society into the future. Um, how quickly are they making that transition happen? Uh, I'm going to let someone else uh, debate that <laughs> side of it. Well, I mean, as far as that goes as well, a lot of what comes up when we talk about, uh, you know, like pipelines and stuff is, does America have energy independence? And it seems like renewable energy would be another avenue to get there, right? We have vastly more renewable energy potential than all of the energy that we consume in the United States, for sure. Uh, it might be distributed somewhat um, unevenly in some places, uh, again, because population density and economic productivity uh, is very concentrated on the coasts or in certain areas around the country. Do we have enough um, solar energy within, for example, the city of Chicago to power all of that city? Un unlikely. Probably not. <laughs> Almost certainly not. But is there enough potential renewable energy in the area when combined with a grid that connects the Great Lakes area more broadly, or the eastern seaboard with offshore wind, or uh, the west coast um, with some of the um, uh, tidal energy resources that are being examined. Um, will that work long term? Yes, I think it will. And so could we be energy independent? I, I mean, I think we could. I think that it would help us to separate from some of the other challenging entanglements that are currently ongoing. Uh, even right now, a huge portion of the discussion about what's happening in Ukraine is based on the amount of natural gas that is supplied from Russia to Germany and the rest of Europe. 
And that is a significant type of political and economic leverage that Russia has over the customers of that energy resource. They have not yet been able to diversify to significant other resources so that they could um, have a better negotiating position. And, and that is very, very challenging. Um, so are there other benefits to developing clean energy and local power? Absolutely. And that's not just at the national level, uh, at the community level, even at the individual level. People being in control of their own energy resources and economically empowered to have more um, decision making in their own life is a great thing. And I think that renewable energy um, on homes and businesses really provides that opportunity. So not just uh, energy independence at the national level, but also energy independence at the local level. How easy is it to do that? I've thought about this a hundred times. I've Googled it, but then it's also like, I don't really know what the good company is. I don't know, you know, how, how, uh, how expensive, how affordable it is. So like if somebody wants to say, put solar panels on their roof, where do they even start? Um, I put solar on my own roof about um, seven and a half years ago. It's been great. Uh, it's been tested in lots of the ways that people ask about. Um, snow piles on it. It melts right off. There was a big hailstorm a few years ago. The roof was damaged and needed to be replaced, but the panels were just fine. Um, so, uh, the, and, and there are a rapidly number, uh, increasing number of people in our community who are realizing that um, having access to their own energy production is something they'd like to do. Um, at a recent OPPD board meeting, there was a presentation about the number of uh, residential solar project applications that we had through 2020, um, and we had 10 times more in 2021 than we did, I think it is in all previous years. I mean, wow. the number was so astounding that it was just really difficult to comprehend. Um, so, so I think that there are companies who are seeing the potential, uh, the renewable energy potential in our community and are starting to do more outreach. As you said, you should be careful when you um, receive information about renewable energy because it is somewhat complicated. Um, there are some nonprofits that provide really good, unbiased, reliable information. Uh, Nebraskans for Solar, um, I was on the board there for a couple of years. They have a great directory of local solar contractors. And OPPD's website has a customer-owned generation page that gives really good information about uh, what you should expect from solar energy, um, how you would work with OPPD to do the review process to get that installed, uh, and, you know, kind of what is the general economic picture. There's a good tool that will allow you to kind of real quickly um, design a solar system for your own roof, something everybody can do. It's very simple and intuitive. Um, and then project out how much energy will that produce, what will the economics look like, uh, and how should I go about finding a contractor to help me with that. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Eric Williams, Vice Chair of the OPPD Board of Directors, about the goal of net zero carbon emissions in Nebraska by 2050. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Well, so I know you brought some notes of other things. You said there's been some new developments that maybe you want to touch on here. So what, what, else, what else do you have to say today that I haven't brought up? Yeah, um, we are in the process of doing um, the integrated resource plan um, at OPPD right now. Um, that's a document that's produced every five years, um, and it outlines the expected demand and the way that we will produce the energy to meet that demand in our community. Uh, and so there was a public meeting last Thursday. Um, the recording of the presentation is available online that people can, um, can, people can check out. Um, that is a, an important projection of the resources over the next five years. And also, um, this time it's looking a little farther into the future because we have that longer-term goal of net zero carbon by 2050. Um, this IRP also projects out how do we think things will be occurring after that five-year planning timeline. So that's a really important document. Um, there will be some discussion at the uh, OPPD board meetings uh, here in February about that document. Uh, and it's built on a lot of the decarbonization energy modeling workshops, which were conducted throughout 2021. So um, I know that there's probably not that many people who hear integrated resource plan. Yay, let's get into that multi-hundred page document. Um, but it is uh, it does have a lot of really good information. Um, and OPPD staff are glad to answer questions. We have some great um, online engagement tools that have been developed over the last year and a half um, because we haven't been able to do in-person engagement activities. Um, and again, um, accountable elected leaders are glad to answer questions for anybody in their, um, in their jurisdiction uh, about the planning process that's going on. So that IRP document is really important. We already talked a little bit 
about the um, vision for 2050, the Power in the Future to 2050 documents. Um, that is uh, an excellent, uh, an excellent resource of what the organization sees for itself moving forward. And so I'm really excited for people to see that information uh, in the near future as well. Um, and so those are some of the kind of big directional documents that um, I would encourage people to look at. And if you have questions, uh, the engagement staff from the organization um, are very glad to uh, talk to people or, or answer them by email. Um, and, uh, and elected officials um, uh, work best when we answer to uh, our constituents. So by all means, um, talk to someone. And if you'd like to see something new or different from what's outlined in the plan, uh, make sure you express your views on that. Where, where can people express their views on that? How do they, how do they contact you? Um, so from the organizational perspective, um, oppd.com is the main website, but oppdcommunityconnect.com has a whole list of projects that have um, engagement platform uh, opportunities. So you can submit comments online, you can review the um, PDF copies of the presentation material, you can watch the recorded presentations from the IRP last week or any of the decarbonization work over the last year. Um, and then if you want to talk directly to an elected official, there is a board contact form um, that does get uh, emailed to each of the directors. And so um, you can choose which director or which member of the executive team you'd like to talk to uh, and express your feelings. And, and that accountability is really important in the way our organization operates. So there's a, a number of different ways that people can um, express things um, you know, digitally online. Oh, uh, or uh, our board meetings in person um, are available every month. Um, and uh, I think this month it will be all virtual um, because of public health considerations. But, um, you know, uh, people can come to the board meeting and express their views directly at that time uh, on either the action items that are being considered. Or there's even a section just called other public comment for people to express any views that are important to them about uh, the way our electric utility um, is engaging in the community. Well, you know, we started uh, pretty gloomy, and sometimes it can be difficult to feel like there's a future to look forward to, and it makes me happy to hear that there is a plan that people like you are putting out there, that there's at least conversations that are serious, that are not trying to be politicized or get into that arena at all. So thank you for talking to me. Thank you for explaining how grids work and other things. This has been really informative for me, and I'm sure for a lot of the listeners. So yeah, this has been great. Yeah, it's been good to be here. Uh, if you really want to know how grids work, I have some great textbooks and some great podcasts <laughs> for you. But um, I think the underlying understanding that we will continue to provide reliable and affordable energy, even while we reduce carbon emissions uh, to meet that net zero goal by 2050, I think that's really the bottom line of what OPPD is doing now. Uh, I'm glad to be a part of that work, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to where we're going in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.